Joseph, which is the lesson of Christianity, is that it's going to get really tough, but we're going to win. And knowing that is victory right now. To know that the battle is over, that the payment has been made, that the devil is cast down, that all that he has left is a story about this world. That's it. That's his whole power is a story about what this world means. And the Bible's story is counter to that story. Right now, the story of what this world means goes something like things are getting better and better because we're smarter than the people from a long time ago because of science or something like that. Right? That's the story. And it's led to all manner of hootenanny. I don't, we don't need to chase it. But the story of the Bible is that there are going to be ups, there's going to be downs. There's a time for this, a time for that, a season for this, a season for that. The race is not always to the swift. The battle is not always to the strong. The lot is cast into the lap, but the product is from God. And that product, as you've ever cast lots, you know it's going to be up, it's going to be down. So there's going to be seasons of pain. And Christianity says, we, not just you alone, we are going to go through this and we're going to overcome because we've already attained the victory through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessings of Genesis 49, which will be kind of our main point today, are just going to affirm this all the more as we see the promise of Jesus given to uh, Judah. Rather than Joseph, while Joseph gets quite a, quite a promise, actually, at the same time. So that's, that's where we're going to try to go today. Like I said a moment ago, there's a lot here. So I, I, I'm probably going to jump around a little and maybe just abandon ship here and there so we get to the real meat. But we are going to go over the whole text. So uh, page 40 of your pew Bible is where you can head to find chapter 47. We heard a moment ago, a little bit from chapter 46, verses 28 to 30. I'm going to read that part to you again here as well. Um, I believe that's on the same page, page 40. Chapter 46, 28 to 30, where um, Joseph had sent Judah ahead of him. Excuse me, Israel, Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. So Joseph has not seen his father for many, 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 many years. I, I, I regret I did not count it, so I can't tell you the exact number. It's like 15 plus. Uh, he had not seen his father for a very long time, and even after seeing Benjamin and his brothers, he doesn't get to see his father right away. So the whole caravan with all the wealth and the 75 people and all the servants of Pharaoh have moved down into this uh, Delta River area. There is a map that you have in the pew today. You can kind of see this. It doesn't say Goshen on it, but if you can find the city Heliopolis and the city Tanis, Goshen's right between there. Okay? And Heliopolis, Heliopolis, <laughs> Heliopolis that is the city of the sun. It's where their religion was centered uh, in Egypt at this time. But so uh, Joseph moves this whole caravan down there by administration, not personally. So he finally goes to meet his dad, right? Verse 29, and Joseph prepared his chariot. He presented himself. He fell on his neck and he wept on his neck a good while. 
And imagine again, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago or maybe last week as he's coming in to see his father, there's like nephews and nieces and like great nephews and stuff going on. And all these people were starving refugees and they're his family. And now he's got them in the best land there is. And he's crying on his father because all those years in prison and all those years being a slave, they were worth it for now, for this moment to be reunited. Excuse me. So also all the years of this life will be worth it on the day of Jesus Christ's return. And the more you know that today, the more all the years of this life are worth it right now. Because right now is worth it when you're with your mother or your father. Even if there's nothing to do besides sit there and silently do something together. Or maybe hold each other. A lost art, I think, in America. Yeah? So they weep together on each other's shoulders And Israel says, I want to fix this. It says, now let me die. Now, he doesn't mean now let me die. He means it's okay if I die now. (laughs) It's a big difference between, I know, I'm okay dying and kill me, right? It doesn't say, you know, kill me. He just says, I can die now. Like my my greatest wishes come true. My life is fulfilled. Have you ever had a moment like that? Um, I've had a couple. Usually I I mean, I don't really want to die when I'm watching my kids play. But there's moments where it's like, you know what? If God took me right now, oh my goodness. It couldn't get better than this. And in one way, we have a, a history of this here in St. Paul with a man named Aaron, who many of you know, who died in the midst of a, a marvelous Easter Sunday, if I recall, for his whole family. And it's left to Mark, indeed. Yeah, but I know where he is. I know what he says, which is that we're going to go through this. And we're going to get through it together because that's what Jesus promises. So that's what's going on with this family as they then move down to Goshen. We touched on the story of him being presented to Pharaoh, and I just want to get you kind of the end of that portion, but I want you to keep this in mind too. So the Pharaoh that puts Joseph in charge of everything died like last year. So this guy's his son. And I want to suggest you don't assume he's 45. I I think we can figure it out. I didn't. But I'm pretty sure he's like under 25. He might even be like 17. And his dad died like at 60-something. Because that's when you die in Egypt. That's not when this people die, though, Jacob, right? So Pharaoh, this young man who's grown up watching this magic magician wizard who foretells the future and brings it to pass with the power of the desk and administration, run his country for his aging father, who then dies, and now the guy's still doing everything, and he's about to buy the country with the tax revenues that he's going to get. Yeah, So he's doing all this, and this guy's dad comes. And this guy's dad is ancient compared to you. You are Pharaoh, though. You'll have an audience. Bring him in. Look at this, this wizard. Yeah. And so uh, let's just get like the end of that piece here. Um, 47, 7 through 10. Uh, actually, we're just going to start at uh, 8. Pharaoh says, how many are the days of your life? Right? Like, how old are you, dude? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and Jacob uh, says to Pharaoh, the days of my jo- sojourning are 130. That's like at least twice the age of Pharaoh's dad when he died. And you know that's a long time. Like, people don't usually live that long. 
Guinness Book of World Records. I mean, someone can quibble if someone did it like last century once or something, but it wasn't a common occurrence, isn't at all. And it fits with what Genesis says about God limiting the years of a man's life to 120 years after the flood, because if he lets us live to be 800, we really mess stuff up. So he limited our lives to be able to save us. And the patriarchs all are like right between that physiological, miraculous, historical shift that we call the flood, right? Uh, and their lives are longer, but shortening very quickly. Um, and and uh, to the effect that, you know, Moses will live a long time too, but he's super unique, right? You also see, I mean, God has the right to extend life when he wants to. Everyone starts to die much younger after like this generation of Moses, um, but not Jehoiada. This guy who lives 130 years during the Kings, He's a priest. He just kind of keeps the country going in the faith, right? So that faithfulness is blessed with life and they go together. I'm not saying that means you're always going to live a long life if you're a Christian. I'm going to say, look, it does happen though. God does give life to people for the good, right? And for Jacob's good here, he's going to bless his sons in Egypt with a promise is going to be for all of us. That's why he's still alive. Huh? But he says, again, few and evil have been my long life. <laughs> it's, it's been short, this long life I've had. And, and evil, I mean, keep in mind, the guy grows up second in his family. He's named Trickster. His brother hates him, wants to kill him. He's kind of a slave to his uncle for 14 years to marry the wrong daughter first. The right daughter he gets her, she's basically barren. She finally has a kid, then she dies. And then the kid that she had, that he loved so much, he dies, or so he thinks. And then there's a famine. Thanks, God. Thought you were with me and stuff. Right? And that's actually where he was at that point. We talked about that last week. Ah, but the gospel word comes even from the grave, right? And Joseph is risen from the dead, and I can die now happily because now I remember the promises of God to my fathers. And in fact, what's going to come next is he's going to bless people with those promises. So even though he considers his days evil because the sojourning is tough here in life, uh, Jacob blesses Pharaoh and goes out from the presence of Pharaoh, let me suggest to you that these two pharaohs might just have been a strange early form of Israelite Christianity. They at least respect the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we'll let Jesus be the judge on the final day of that. Um, from here now, they go down, they get the best of the land of Goshen. I kind of showed you that on the map already. Um, uh, the, the, the famine will continue. There's a whole section in which I mentioned it, Joseph's ability to, to trade grain allows him to first basically empty the cash from the land. There's no cash at all. And it's almost you know, a problem. And, he, and people are like, it's a problem. He says, just trade me your land. <laughs> and so he trades in the land, and then they have to sell themselves. So the whole of Egypt, with the exception of the priesthood, ends up in sort of a, a client-state relationship with the pharaoh, which they didn't have before this in this version of, of Egypt. There's three ancient kingdoms in Egypt. This is, I believe, the middle. Um, so uh, he buys them all up except the priests, which you might imagine is going to create something of an, uh, uh, an imbalance in the powers and over time, this could really lead to economic collapse. And in fact, it does because this kingdom will collapse some 40 years after Joseph dies. Um, it doesn't really go long. And you enter into this intermediary period that I may talk about if we have time at the end. Um, but that's what that section's about. We're going to jump, though, to chapter 49 which is where the meat is really going to be. And I think we got plenty of time for it here um, to dig in to these promises um, uh, that Jacob gives. And 
I kind of lied. We're on the page that chapter 49 is on, um, but we're going to look at also the promises that Jacob gives to Ephraim and Manasseh through Joseph. So when Jacob knows he's going to die, which is closer to him being 147, by the way, um, when he knows he's going to die, he decides to impart the blessing of what I think I used to have called in Lutheran school, the covenant promise. I think that's what they taught me it was. Uh, which is that from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from one of Jacob's sons will come the one who was promised to come from Adam and Eve, who will be the man who will defeat the devil, right? The dragon slayer will be born from you, one of you, 12. And I'm going to say so now. And he pulls in Joseph first and separate with his, Joseph's two sons, that is Israel's grandsons. And he does something a, a little bit odd. Um, let's see here. I'm going to not have us look directly at that part because it's not on the same page. But uh, what he does is he tells Joseph, each of these boys now aren't your boys. They're my boys. I now have 13 sons. All your other sons, Joseph, they're going to be sons of these two guys. They'll be part of this house. And there are Israelites that are accounted in Chronicles that actually are born to Joseph that end up in the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, which are known as famous names as tribes of Israel, even though they're grandsons of Israel. And this is the moment where Jacob, Israel, that's his name, right? Both those things, where Jacob says, this is the case. And so we're going to look here um, at uh, verse 15. One more tidbit as we go forward. Manasseh's the older brother. Ephraim's the younger brother. Joseph positions them so Manasseh will get the right-hand blessing, which is evidently, to all common sense and natural history and philosophy, the more powerful blessing. You know this because there's more right-handed people in the world. It doesn't mean we're better at everything. It just means there's more of us. And so a blessing symbolically from the right hand is more powerful than from the left. So he puts the oldest son for the right hand to reach and the youngest son for the left hand to reach. It's still a hand. It's still a blessing. You know, it's not bad. And Jacob switches them. And he puts his right hand, the hand of power, on the second son. Hey, who's Jacob, by the way, huh? Second son. <laughs> I don't know what he's thinking, but he's, don't, he's thinking, I'm going to bless this guy more. The prophecy of God and the spirit of God is in me and Ephraim's going to actually be stronger than Manasseh. It's just the way it's going to play out in history, so that when you think of the name Ephraim, I mean, you want to write any note down today for Bible study purposes, the name Ephraim means Joseph in every other thing that comes up in the Bible. Like you have to hear it as Ephraim, son of Joseph. Not because it's not a tribe of Israel, but because everything about Joseph is who Ephraim thinks he is. And the people of Ephraim will think they are all the way down and through Joshua, the Ephraimite. And the tabernacle at Shiloh that Joshua erects. It's quite a thing. Uh, what happens with Ephraim, Joseph, and then the history between Ephraim and his brother Judah in the land. It all plays out, and a lot of it's laid out right here. And I'll hat tip Deuteronomy 33. And numbers, I can't quote it, but the prophecies of Balaam all come together, and they give you the whole history of Israel before it happens. And this is why liberals don't like the Bible and say, it was written later. It's because they don't like to believe that they can, there could be prophecies like this. Uh, but here, here we go then. The prophecy to Ephraim, really, but it's to both of them, but the right hand's on Ephraim's head. He says, The God before whom my fathers walked, 
Abraham and Isaac, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth." So the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is specifically that their people will be so fertile, so fruitful, so procreative, that faster than other peoples, they will grow to be peoples. They will grow to be nations, and they will endure until the end of the world, which goes on now, does it not? But see, that promise isn't to the grandsons of Jacob and their names, Except for these two guys, now again, they get to be promised that multitudinous growth with the right hand on Ephraim, so he'll always be bigger. And indeed, among the tribes, these are going to be huge tribes. Huge tribes. One other piece before we move on to see, though, as a Christian, I'll tell you something right now, a Jew cannot see in this text, and I'm not being a racist, I'm talking about the faith. Okay, A Jew cannot accept what I'm about to say. This is a Trinitarian blessing. Look at it again. Three times he calls on the God of Abraham, the God who is my shepherd, and the angel of redemption, who he equates with God, which, of course, the angel of Yahweh, the angel of Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate son of God, Jesus, before he became a man. So I think we would have to understand that he's calling on Jesus, the God who is his shepherd. Well, this has got to be the Holy Spirit through the word in some way. And the God who is the father of fathers, my father Abraham, father of nations, and all these things. A Trinitarian blessing, that word bless, barach in the Hebrew, means not just to say something, but to actually do something. So, you know, go, be warm, be fed. Not a blessing. Here's a coat. That's a blessing, actually. (laughs) It's a blessing. The words do what they say, right? It's not magic, except for when it's prophecy, it certainly is more powerful than sharing a coat. Although sharing a coat with the right person is pretty powerful at the right time. And Joseph gets a little bit upset about this, though. He's like, Dad, (laughs) you did it wrong. Are you blind like, you know, Grandpa was? (laughs) Um, And Dad's like, I know. Right? So verse 19, I know, my son. I know. He also, Manasseh, shall become a great people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. That is so cool to me. So, so what that means is there's going to come a time in Israel's history when you know, someone in the tribe of Dan is going to hear about like somebody else has got a business venture from the tribe of Dan. He's talking over, you know, I don't know, what do they drink back then? There was a form of beer. Um, They're talking over, you know, the evening sacrifice about the business contract they're going to make next week at work. And the guy says, well, may you be like Ephraim. May God make you like Ephraim. Like that was how they said good luck or God bless you for a period of their history because it was just so good for Ephraim. And Manasseh, they were just, they had what they needed. No one could mess with them. They were doing well in the world. And the history of where this goes is fascinating. No pride and idolatry is where these tribes kind of end up. <laughs> yeah, but, but again, here at the moment, it's not that though. This is the blessing of God upon the people of God. 
but they shall always be fruitful. And Ephraim's name is double fruitful. Uh, uh, double fruitful. But now, uh, with all of that done, let's see here. We've got the other boys, which are just always a bubble in the text. If you come through, you're reading your Bible in a year, and you get to this, and you're like, Benjamin's a ravenous wolf. He's a gazelle. W what is going on here? It's, it's a little strange. Um, but I think I can open it up without, you know, too much detail or focus. You know, we've got about 10 minutes here. Um, and I think 49, we can, we can pull this open. So uh, this is where he calls all of his sons together, right? So all 12 are there. Nobody's dead. Um, Ephraim and Manasseh aren't present, are present. I don't know, but Joseph certainly is. Maybe the text will help us with that. Um, but he calls them and he says, gather yourselves together. By the way, that's going to be like the word synagogue or the word church, to gather, um, uh, gather yourselves together, congregate, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Right? So here is a prophecy about each of you based upon in part about who I know you are as your father. And of course, this is going to connect at points to Christ. Right? So assemble uh, church and listen. O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. Remember, Jacob means trickster. Israel means God fights for you and against you at the same time. Um, uh, he talks to Reuben in verse three. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Right, so he starts off pretty good here. Like, Reuben, you are awesome. You're my firstborn son, and there was nothing wrong with you. But you were, verse 4, unstable as water. You shall have no preeminence. So your strength isn't enough, is what it means. Uh, because you went up to your father's bed. And the story here of, of Reuben and Billah, uh, the concubine of Jacob, whom Reuben will... Uh, procreate, attempt to procreate with, uh, is, is quite a thing. It's, it's really quite more than that here, though. Notice the connection between instability and lust, okay? And then the connection between lust and pride. That these feelings or emotions or temptations or whatever you want to call them, they, they link up with each other and they are unstable. Why is it foolish for a man to go drinking and meet women at bars? Because they're going to be unstable women. That's why, you know? Um, and well, defilement is what comes, right? He went up to my couch and it's like, yeah, dude, you, you went after your mom, man. That's wrong. And there's levels that are just wrong and everyone should know that. We used to, right? And, and we do, actually, most of us. Uh, more than 80% of America probably is still convinced that you're born a certain way. Yeah, so don't let the TV fool you too much on that. But here, see the connection to Reuben as sort of a, a problematic guy. He has everything, but he doesn't know it. And he wants it too soon, and so he loses it all. And this is how the tribe will actually be. Reuben will vanish pretty quickly into history. The next two guys go together, Simeon and Levi, brothers. And these are all uh, sons of Leah right now, by the way. So Leah's firstborn, second, and third. Simeon and Leah, bro Levi, brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in in Israel. So, story of the defilement of Dinah, 
and the revenge that Simeon and Levi take upon the people of Shechem, slaughtering all their men who had just formed a circumcision compact with them, and we learn here also hamstringing all their animals, which is, if you think about it, not an act of conquering, right? If you conquer someone, you take his cow. You don't hamstring it. They left the women without the food. Wicked, wicked thing they did. And, and Jacob will have no part of it. He says, you're going to stop being tribes, which happens again uh, to both of these two. Simeon does just vanish into the mix of everything. Levi would have, but Levi gets to be redeemed by a guy named Moses. And that's a fun story right there. The priesthood comes out of this, Aaron and a bunch of other things. And so redemption is here as a seed. Oh, look, here's one who we should not take counsel with. Let's make him the priest because <laughs> Moses is the wisest guy there is. And, and times change. And then they don't. The word of God remains the same in all the times as they come. Yeah? So Simeon and Levi don't get a very good promise. But Levi will be redeemed later. And then we come to Yehuda, Judah. Judah, who is the fourth son of Leah, 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 and really does not deserve any better. He's the one who sold Jacob into slavery, you might remember. There's some other things he does with a woman named Tamar, where she is definitely more righteous than he, and she's a prostitute. So he's not more righteous. And your immediate question, if you care, has to be, why is he going to say what he says instead of what he says to Joseph and adding it to Joseph, since Joseph's obviously been the, the whole thrust of the whole story. And with limited time, I'm going to jump to Joseph and then come back and finish with Judah so we can get Judah as our capstone. But that's the question. He's going to tell Judah, you're in charge. Judah's the fourth-born son of Leah. There'll be two more. Huh? And then you have Joseph and Benjamin, first and second of Rachel, his beloved, Joseph's many-colored coat, double sonship to Ephraim and Manasseh. Why does he not do more? Here's what he says to Joseph, though. Verse 22, we're on page 43. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall, ha, like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing its fruit in season. Remember that verse, everybody? Yeah. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely, let his bow remain unmoved, his arms remain agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you? By the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep, crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. But the Messiah is not mentioned. So Ephraim is going to be northern Israel. They're going to be why Judah's so great when the men of Ephraim come to David. It all works out. Benjamin, they gave it a try. He's a ravenous wolf devouring the prey. That means he's spunky. He's spunky, but he ain't no lion like Judah. So as much as I want to talk about Joseph, let's go back to Judah. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. That's a play on words. The name Judah means praise, but not like alleluia. It's a different word because you have hallelujah, which means praise like exaltation. Yada 
means praise by admission of truth. And in fact, when men use this word most in the Old Testament, it means to, to confess your sin. Yeah? Your brother shall confess you is really, though, the way to hear this. They shall confess you. They shall, they shall call out to you. Uh, for your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Think about hand and foot, Jesus on the serpent. Yeah? Your fathers shall bow down before you, right? The Lord said to my Lord, David writes. Right? David writes of Jesus and he bows down to Jesus. Your father shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub, right? He is the son of a lion. A lion is by far the most dangerous animal in the Middle East. The Barbary lion, which is currently extinct, however, so it's not like it's there anymore. Uh, but these were powerful, vicious animals. And he calls him uh, both a, a normal lion, you know, the, the strong lion. There's like seven words for lion in Hebrew. Um, but he's also then uh, the cub who uh, crouches as a lion and as a lioness. That's verse 9. And the point of it is, who dares rouse him? So you imagine there's a young lion out there kind of prowling around hungry, maybe looking for a girl. Do you mess with it? No, you don't mess with it. You go away. Yeah, Or here's a, a lioness with prey in her mouth going back up to the mountains where you know her cubs are. Do you try to stop her? No, you don't try to stop her. That's who Judah is because that's who Jesus is. And this is where this prophecy is going. The scepter, the rod, the staff, the power shall not depart from the one who confesses Yahweh, God, Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall the obedience of the peoples be. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Okay, so uh, until tribute comes to him is a bad translation of until he comes to Shiloh. Shiloh is a name. It means peace. Uh, commentators have a lot of trouble with this because they don't believe in messianic promises. But all this that he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until the ruler's staff comes to Shiloh, the man of peace, Jesus. All right. And so indeed, people look to the house of David to be the salvation of the world until Jesus came. And now he's king of kings and lord of lords. There's the promise written large. Let me just explain the donkey's cult stuff because I know it's kind of weird. All of that is a symbol of peace, right? So the donkey is a war horse in the time they're living. So imagine a war horse if you have to, but imagine a world in which the most terrifying thing is a man with a sword on a donkey. Or maybe 50 of them coming at you. Right? So, well, but Judah, he took his donkey and he tied it up on a, a, a vine for grapes in the vineyard. He just left his donkey tied there, and now his eyes are dark with wine. Like he, oh, he's got time to sit in the afternoon and sip a cool cocktail underneath the vineyard, and his donkey's chewing around the grass, and honey, bring me a, bring me a latte. There's plenty of milk flowing around. Judah's going to have prosperity. And we see this in Solomon's empire. Absolutely, as a foretaste of the feast to come, which we feast on right now. Let me suggest to you again that right now, the wealth that you have in believing this story is yours right now, this God is yours right now, and today he operates by the same promises to you. That's heaven right now. That's the confession of God as God. Jesus is Lord right now. And so all of it again, to close up our story of Joseph, is to say that you're gonna go through it. But Jesus Christ and his name is always with you. And you're always going to be better for it, even starting tomorrow morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.